right, I'm not sure, like, Nick, I'm not sure a week goes by when someone really don't ask us, like, what's it like being a male in EC? Or that's so cute, you know what I mean? Like, stuff like that. And, and, you know, that definitely always gives an eye roll or sometimes they turn their back and they get something else. (laughs) Um, But it really wasn't until recently that I've been really thinking about this question and really, like, differently, you know, thinking about how despite being in the numerical minority as being a male, especially a male of color in D.C., like, I still hold so much power in that. Yeah, and, you know, I've been thinking about this topic a lot since it's crossed both of our minds. And uh, and in those moments, in those conversations, Mike, you and I have different takes on it. And I think it's important that we define what is patriarchy, you know, and what we understand of what it is. You know, literal dictionary definition that I pulled up is, the system of of society or government in which men hold the power and women are largely excluded from it. And so I think just going off of the literal definition, I'd say no, patriarchy does not exist within the current iteration of early childhood education. Although I do want to point out that of most of what we consider as best practices and what we go off of and child development theory comes from uh, the work of white men. P.J. Bromfenberner, Vygotsky, Mel Guzzi. Um, but, and there have been some women too within that time, Helen Keller, Maka Gerber, Leilani, uh, Leilani Rinaldi, you know, so, and, they, and these developmental theories were all brought up within the span of like 200 years, which is different times, different places, different contexts. And again, there are numerous like factors to consider this, and we don't really have the time to do that today. And that's what I was thinking maybe this at some point could be like a two-part discussion. And, you know, I think what you're bringing up, though, uh, is something else, you know, uh, perhaps more of like sexism within workplace context. That I can agree exists, but not patriarchy in the context of today. And I think, Mike, like with catchy titles like we have for this one, um, we have to be careful that we're not actually just exacerbating the gender balance issue in the class. Because I would reframe this concept we're talking about as early childhood education as having lingering effects of patriarchy. Because of how our society in the United States is set up, patriarchy has its stains in everything, right? Just like we've talked about racism. And um, it, 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 it's what has determined who does what sort of job based on their gender and how we view this role of being a quote-unquote nurturing person. But I think it's a slippery and dangerous slope to conflate something so big in general, like the term patriarchy, into the context of early childhood education. Because, yes, our field reflects patriarchal oppression, but within itself and within the specific context of wherever you're working, I just don't think it has and in my experience, doesn't have patriarchal power dynamics. And that being said, I, you know, it's important for everyone to consider their intersectionality and how that plays into the relationships and experience with, within the workplace setting. And now that my particular, you know, on a personal level, that my quote unquote power has somewhat shifted from educator to director, I try to be cognizant about how my position 
as a cisgendered heterosexual male in, again, quote, unquote, leadership role and where most of our educators are women and how that influences my decision, speech, approach to conflict and all that. And, you know, all that like just intersects in a matter of seconds. All right, y'all. So everyone knows that child care is essential. We're some of the most influential people out there. Yet, we are often overworked and underpaid. So how can you work full time, have hobbies, show your friends and family love, self-care, and also fine tune your skills and grow more in depth? That's where we come in. These NAPCasts are designed to help you learn on the go, hear another perspective, spark debate, (laughs) heck, even agree with us. But honestly, remind you that you're not alone. We live in a complex world, so allow us to challenge your perspective. So are your headphones in? Did you turn the volume up? All right now, good. Let's get it. I think it's good for us to talk real quickly about intersectionality because Sister uh, Kimberly uh, Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality back in the 80s. So just to give context for people who don't really know uh, much about it, it's basically how identities intersect. Yeah, yeah so yes, y'all know I'm, I'm Black, I'm Afro-Caribbean, and like I'm also a male, and I'm second generation, and um, like you, Nick, I'm cisgender, I'm heterosexual, I'm able body, I'm neurotypical, like et cetera, et cetera. So I bring that up because like most people are just like, oh, you're a black male. And I'm like, yes, and like my life doesn't exist in this narrow vacuum or box that we put, you know, you're putting myself in. And, you know, I don't suddenly enter the learning environment or whatever hat I'm wearing in the day. And all the suddenly all the other identities disappear. You know, I, I even think and, and continue to think about like, yeah, I'm I'm a black person, and I still have anti blackness like within me, right? I still deal with anti blackness in my center. I uh, you know, as a male, I still hold a ton of privileges in, in our center. So you know, just because there's, well, I think we're up to about seven or eight male identifying educators like in my environment it doesn't mean that we don't uh uh our ideologies how we grow up you know patriarchy working in a patriarchal system right in society it doesn't mean that i simply don't bring those ideas those policies those thoughts those cultures um into my work yeah and and i think yeah maybe in in your and maybe each of our specific contexts, we might be able to, to reflect on that. And I think, again, bringing it to our field as a general, I think if we impacted policies and the male identifying people impacted policies in the way you're describing, uh, then I actually think there might be more gender balance in not only our field of education, but other occupations that women are systemically excluded from. And I'll agree that, you know, we have more impact as males because our mere presence in the classroom can raise eyebrows. We are far more scrutinized and constantly asked to explain why we're there with young children. 
or what what are we exactly doing there? You must be somebody's dad, or you must be the janitor, or you must be this. Um, that isn't always related to being an educator. Um, and to your earlier comment, you know, what is it like to be a man? I think is another in ECE. Uh, it's another one of those sort of sideways comments of of us having to explain ourselves. And I'll even go as far as to liken it to uh, the anti-blackness, where you know where where black people are asked to explain why they're in a certain neighborhood, or when they're asked if they're an athlete or musician for having an expensive car or house, you know those sort of stereotypes that come up. And uh, you know it's uh, a privilege that we might have depending on where you live, and because there are so few of us that we are underrepresented underrepresented and people want to hear from us and they want to know what our takes are on, on teaching and nurturing young children. They want to know our our stories. And you know, I'll go out I'll go out on a limb and say that, you know, this is a parallel to people of color entering and we're being welcomed into predominantly white spaces. Representation might be one of not only if not the only privilege that we might carry. So welcome to NAPCAST, a NAPCAST produced by two brothers of color. Um, my name is Mike Brown. My pronouns are he, him, and... And I'm Nick Taronis, and uh, my pronouns are he, him, also. So Nick, I gotta, uh, you know, since we were talking about when we first decided to, to talk about this subject, like, I was like, yo, we, we gotta get in a different perspective of thought, because... You know, that's just what we do. So I got a couple of friends I wanted to discuss patriarchy and male privilege in ECE with. So we're joined by uh, Maraf. So Maraf, welcome to NAFCAST. You know, just introduce yourself, brother. Thanks for having me. My, my name is Maraf. Um, I've been in early child education for about four or five years now. Um, I got a, I really got into it a, a year, four or five years ago. So now uh, I moved to Eugene, Oregon, University of Oregon, doing my master's in early child education. So I'm happy to be here. Gotcha. You from the Pacific Northwest? No, I'm from New York, actually. New York City. Okay, all right. I see you. All right, what, uh, what part? Uh, Manhattan, Rico, San Harlan. Okay, gotcha. I was like, man, this, this accent sounds familiar. Like, feel like home. Okay, so I'm from, I mean, I ain't really from the city, 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 but I got family out in Bronx, and then um, I'm from Buffalo. So I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> but, but we can talk about that uh, on a different time. Um, I really I really want to start off today's conversation. Uh, I'm going to kick it to you, Nick, because like, I just wonder, have you ever had a moment where you, like, stopped mid-sentence and was like, Hey, I'm I'm kind of flexing my male privilege right now, and like not in a good way, right? Um, well, no, <laughs> you know, and and well, maybe in the context of being able to to be able and comfortably and uh, to adequately start and, and stop rough and tumble play, maybe, and maybe so quickly assess potential risky situations and still encourage children to go for it. But I think I know the story that you want me to share, Mike. And, you know, I have thought about this um, further. And I don't really see it as flexing a male privilege. I see it as an act of uh, more maybe self-reflection and, and emotional intelligence, like all clicking in a moment of vulnerability. And, you know, 
what the story is, and I think I've shared it before, is there was a point where um, a, a female identifying colleague came and said, you know, I, I feel like you have a gender bias because when I ask you to do X, Y, and Z, LMNOP, it takes you a while to do it. But if I send these two male identifying people or one of them, then you seem to respond to it a lot quicker. And, you know, I, in that moment, I definitely had a, a worry of reasonable justifications that I wanted to spout out. But like any, like racism, sexism, this idea of, of patriarchy and, um, it, it can thrive when we build up walls of excuses around them. Um, and our reasoning and our defensiveness does create that safe space for, for these evil, evilisms to, to thrive. But what I've come to learn is calling these out and spot, spotlighting potential biases that we carry. It can keep the, um, uh, those walls from going up and, and, and tamper the growth of prejudice that stems from our bias. And in that moment, I, I would say that it was a bias that I called out and I'd be happy to go into what the reasons of why it took me longer to respond. But I don't think that's important. The important piece is that I called out a potential bias that could be there and that I could, um, you know, be more proactive with my responses to things later on. You got a, you got an example for us? Me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, I mean, um, so like for me and most of the centers I worked in, like I was probably the only black male. Mm. So, um, most of the time I don't tend to get involved in a lot of stuff like, like, you know, just, want to do my job in and out because like I know sometimes like things can be looked at the wrong ways all my actions I think like when you said um, flexing my masculinity as a I think one time I remember like we was playing with the kids and uh, we had a most of them was like a white female teachers and they wanted the kids to stay quiet you know, do quite activity. And I was like, you know what? That's not what we're going to do. And I just like came in there, took over and just like had the kids yelling and screaming. I've been play fine with them. And most of the teachers was pretty mad that they didn't really want to say anything to me. And like, I, like, I just kept, you know, I mean, like, I just, I wouldn't hear them out. I'm like, that's what we're going to do. And that's what's going to happen. So I feel like I tend to do this at some time, but like that really happens when I feel like, Males, especially boys, what I'm looking at are not being treated equally as the same as females, especially in our field, because like most of the time, I believe te they want to do the teaching based on the students have to sit down and learn. They can't play around or roughhouse, especially for the young boys. When that kind of happens, I tend to get a little mad and just like come over and take over. So, I mean, I've I, I seen myself do that a couple of times before. Yeah, 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 I mean, it's it's definitely a hard balance to, to strike because you want to dismantle like these white supremacist norms of this is how you quote unquote should look like, right? You should act. You know, Nick, you brought up before the the obedience uh, song and how, and even within that, you're trying to balance out how do we support our children of color and our males of color in quote unquote 
I don't want to use the word over again, like being obedient, knowing that they're going to enter a system that's going to vilify them, that's going to track them, that's going to demonize them. So you, but also you want them to, to have that creative freedom, that expression. Um, so I see how you're balancing both like the, the proactive dismantling of like these white supremacist values and how you can also at the same time maybe contribute to I'm flexing my power as a male in this situation. Um, so it's, it's definitely a fine line in, in a balance. I mean, with that, like, I feel like a lot of us are really underprivileged when it comes to, especially the ECE field that I have seen. Even now, for example, like, I go to my classes and sometimes I'm like, I'm the only black male. All my master classes. And I just feel like I sometimes have to watch what I'm saying because sometimes, like, they might just get up and start yelling and screaming. So I was like, you know what? Like, I tend to hold myself a lot because we're really underprivileged and the way we see things and the way we do things, they might not understand it. I think that's, and I, maybe we'll dive into it a little bit later, but I think that's the fine line that you're pointing out, Mike, and, and you're identifying it very well, Marof, is a lack of understanding. So I, I when I hear Marof's uh, story about interjecting to give children what is their right, especially according to their biological sex and what their biology and physiology is driving them to do, I don't see that as flexing a male privilege other than just being like, I'm meeting this child's need because I identify with that need, right? Just as like a teacher of color who would identify that with another um, child of the same race or cultural makeup. Or like, I understand what this person needs. I'm going to meet them there. And if this steps on your toes, then so be it. And I mean, yeah, I, we can, we can make anything sound like anything we want, but we got to really look at, yeah, that, that level of understanding. So it kind of gets me thinking about like conversations I've had on the side with other people just about how privileged groups often sometimes, right? Because we, so much of the time we're, we're victims, right? But then at other times we can use parts of our identities to oppress us. So I'm, I'm thinking of just how sometimes us or, or privileged groups fail to recognize their own privilege. Um, and, and they believe that sometimes they are actually the disadvantaged group. So I guess what I'm trying to ask is what are some ways do you think we as male educators, uh, as EC leaders, receive fewer discrimination or, or, or just have lesser impacts because of our gender as opposed to our femme-identifying counterparts, our non-binary you know, non uh, uh, colleagues? Does that make sense? I'm going to throw it to you, Mara, first. I'm trying to think about that question. Mm. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't think I have faced a lot of stuff like that. I'm not, I mean, I'm not pretty sure about that. I have to think more about it. What about you, Nick? You know, I think, again, like I sort of mentioned before, men are more scrutinized than our fam identifying colleagues. 
you know, if, again, patriarchy existed in ECE, less boys would be expelled from school. Again, our biological and natural inclinations for high energy wouldn't be demonized and there wouldn't be these obedient songs. Um, maybe less boys would be labeled with special needs. There would, uh, a higher respect for rough and tumble play. You know, in regards to male educators, I've heard a handful of stories like globally. Uh, I mean, in the country of Qatar, damn, it's illegal for a man to work with children. And it's like, I think somebody, uh, I might be going on a limb, I forgot this several years ago, but it might be punishable by death if you're alone with children as a, as a man. And, you know, for whatever their cultural reasons are. And, uh, and I've, you know, even heard stories of like men in the United States being accused of being a pet, uh, or being labeled as pedophiles that children have sat on their laps or they invite children to sit on their laps and they're comforting with them. And even specifically in, um, San Diego, not too long ago, a young male who was studying early childhood education was ran out of the center he was volunteering in because he had a child sitting on his lap and when he got up, a teacher thought that he had an erection. And, but we know that genes aren't always flattering on men's bodies also. And it, and that wasn't the case, but that ran him out of the, out of the field, you know, and, I, and I've had in my experience over the years, um, I've had both, uh, fathers and mothers express their concern. I mean, mostly to the director and then came back to me, um, about, you know, caring for their young children and, you know, through, and, but fortunately, that power relationship building, like, squash those perceptions. The thing right there is, it's, it's, it's good that you had, uh, I'm not just saying that because I'm in senior leadership, but, uh, when you were here, but, you know, it, it is good that you got other people that, that has your back, that, that draws that line that says, yo, look, this is what it is. If you don't sign up to come to our center or our program, you're going to have males changing you know, diapers of, of the opposite gender, right? You're going to have all of these different people and identities come up and, and help raise your child because that's what a community is. Um, and But even just the answer of like my own question is I think back to how we were signing a new lease uh, to expand our center and the... Um, the building contractors, right? They they kept pushing it off. They they kept having excuses, things like that. To to my executive director, who's who's femme identifying, and then one time she looped me in, and then suddenly like contracts got signed. You know, people were showing up and all this other thing, and I was like, "Yo, is it because I was there? Is it because like <laughs> you know I present a certain way?" So these are just some of the things in which I'm always constantly thinking about. Um, but yeah, Marah? Um, I mean, to take back off your neck, um, what are you saying with the males that, um, like, certain jobs, like, when I go to certain centers, like, I will, like, some of the directors, especially, like, the director, the female black director, you know, she'll put me aside and say, hey, like, this, don't do this, don't do this. I know, like, you're a male in this field, especially being a black male in this field, like, you have to be careful in everything you do, like, you're being watched how you interact with the kids, how you play with the kids. Like going from working from a private center to working for the Seattle public school was like a whole cultural shock because the Seattle public school system, 
like they have all these laws like rules he can't do you can't do this he can't do this and my director like would tell me as soon as i get there like i explained to her the center i was working from where i'm coming from she was like well you know he said for example like in your center if they allow you to sit on a lap they say that's allowed but in the public school system you can't do that especially with a black male you do that you're gonna be like gone and so like most of the time we have to watch our back and like he said, like we do need people to protect us, but having a good support system, I think really helps a lot. And then more of the black females are who's in a higher position are more understanding of black males when they're in their field compared to, you know, vice versa. I think about what does that communicate to to children in like a public school system when you gotta navigate these rules. Like what does that say? Because what what we're trying to do, like being as as males of color um in these children's lives is show them that there are different ways to be male it doesn't have to be toxic you know we can be loving we can be nurturing we can give hugs but when we enter a school system or or get placed in in a program in which that isn't allowed right that physical contact that that be able to adapt someone up um how are we then reinforcing all of these toxic things that we're hoping to to get rid of like to dismantle I mean, we we don't stand up to it. We really we don't force. It. I mean, it's very hard to enforce it because I think you have to be in a higher position to explain what's going on, especially to the parents. Because we're not in a higher position, and we just like the teachers. I don't think we did that. There's so much we could do. Like we need to start advocating for ourselves more, and that like like for example, my country, like I'm from Ethiopia, right? Being a teacher and like and everything is more of a male job than a female. Mm. You have more male teachers than female teachers. Well, compared to this country, you have more female teachers, male teachers. So, um, I actually did a research on that once. It's like even like most countries is more male teachers than female teachers. It's mostly in the Western countries where you have uh, female teachers, and over there, like back in like back in Africa, we there's nobody saying hey like. This guy's touching kids, so there's like there's not that many cases like that going on. Mm. So, so good. So I think we need to start advocating for ourselves more and probably start adapting a different way of seeing how males are in this field. Do you think um you know, from do you think it's more respected in Ethiopia to be a male teacher? Because here, you know, we don't get that first of all, just the field in general don't get that respect. ECE, but is it, is it, do you think there's a difference because there's more males? Yeah, there's, over there's more respect than over here. Like, 100%. Because, like, I grew, when I was young and my teacher was more males, like, you know, everybody listened. We did what we were supposed to be doing. And, like, that's how you know, like, from first grade to eighth grade, or, I mean, that's, I went to school, like, first to third grade, but most of my teachers was male, like, and you like it's all respected. Like it was okay to be a teacher, especially the male teacher. Where I came here, and I was like, I only had like, I don't know how to say, like two teachers. Who's male? Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> One of them was a gym teacher. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, we get pigeonholed into into our stereotypes, right? Yeah, and then, and most of the teachers I actually I had a teacher from Africa, and he was more of understanding. Hmm. Of everything, and like he would lie, like I could, I could communicate with him. Like I could stay after school and get my homework done. Funny, extra help was like 
me and him, we had that connection. Compared to where with a female teacher, like she didn't really understand so much. What advice would you give to your, you know, to that female teacher to be like, yo, how do you build that kind of that cultural capital or just to bridge the gap between cultures? Uh, be a lot more cultural awareness and cultural sensitivity. And then I think, like, especially in uh, Seattle, if I have to say, like, there's a lot more diverse community going on. So, like, understanding your community, like, your bait, like, like if they put you in, in some school district, understand the community you're serving, not like, and erase your biased thoughts. You know, when you come in this, I'm serving like this kind of comedian, this kind of community to have this kind of cultural beliefs. So, and to try to adapt to it and learn from it and ask questions. And then understand where they come from a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And what I'm, I'm hearing, if I could reframe and, and add on a little bit for the listeners, is that understanding the the community ain't just about going to a Juneteenth celebration or or eating some injera. Somewhere along the lines, I feel like we got boiled down to like to a book, to to an equation. Something simple like one plus one equals two. And and people thought that in order to in order to understand blackness, which has no real definition because everything that this sun touches was influenced by by the brilliance of my shades of chocolate throughout the years, throughout history, which means I am unique and complex, right? That's not in a book. So when I hear you say you got to be culturally aware, I really hear you saying that, you're really saying that we got to go back to being that teacher researcher, right? It means you got to, be an observer of of black females, males, trans, straight, straight-ish, uh, queer, drag queens, etc. Right, and move from looking at our lives through a lens of oppression. Because my my voice, my strut, my body, my graceful and often awkward movements and gestures, right? It's it's, it's rich because my blackness is multidimensional. And that in turn affects how I might move with you. What what I share with you, how I participate, how I show up. To support the black community, you need to craft an environment, a, a curriculum, a worldview. Right? It, it, it's, it's, it's more than by putting out the materials in your classroom. It's a worldview that centers the black experience and places them as the main character in the story. Because as we shared in, in a previous Snapcast, stories is often how we learn. Stories is what helps uh, people make sense of their lives. And I've said this before as well, that our, our educational institutions, uh, our schools, they were all formed with the intention to control. In centering blackness, at the heart of what we do, even in the absence of black people in your environment, is more than just minimizing the bias you just said, Marath. But I see it as an act of commitment to the liberation we are all seeking. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Mike. 
you know, the guy you spent a good 20 minutes just listening to. Nick and I love doing these. But do you know what's more fun? Doing these in person. And that's exactly what we've started to do. We've hit the road. Well, kind of, sort of. Because, you know, (laughs) COVID's still a thing. But we are now doing these workshops with organizations, being featured at conferences, and having these conversations with college students, high schoolers, and middle schoolers. And we'd love to come hang out with you next. If you want to bring us, you already know what to do. And that's drop us an email. So we just talked about like privilege and, and privileged groups. But what do you think are some barriers that exist within our own gender that prevents us from acknowledging our own advantage? Uh, sometimes I'm going to say we could be less understanding. Um, we have like a, this tendency of masculinity. Mm. Like, are we going to say, you know what, like we're right and that's about it? <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean. I think, like, sometimes it's just our whole approach is just, like, you know, you have a male to be the alpha male. Like, when you're in a room, you want to be the leader. You don't want to listen to anybody. So it's just, like, sometimes, like, we got to start meeting the meeting them halfway, working together. Like, and I think I can really work for us. We just meet met, met together and worked. Because for experience I had once was uh, I had this female teacher with me. Mm-hmm. And we would work on the... We're in diverse population, but she didn't understand. You know, she called them delinquents. Man. <laughs> she called them delinquents, and she, I'm like, I couldn't believe what she was saying. Where compared to, like, she had to leave the center, and they gave me another teacher. And me and her, we just sat down and talked, you know, told her I had a bad experience with this teacher. This is how we're going to do it. This is how we're going to communicate. This is how I like to teach. How do you like to teach? And, like, for the whole year, everything went perfect. So, I mean, I'm just saying we just got to communicate and learn from each other about it. I feel you on that one. I feel like Nick will say something like, I'm trying to put on my Nick cap. Um, uh, like, he'll probably say something like, you know, we live definitely in a time and just in society that, that really encourages uh, being certain, right, over curiosity, especially in, in males. And being curious about one another uh, can just overall just usher in the process of understanding and being curious about yourself, right? Means questioning why you hold beliefs, um, why you hold these certain beliefs. And that can really help the process of of, of rooting that biases, like you mentioned. Um, Oh, Nick has stepped away. Now he's back. All right. Nick, you got anything to answer? Uh, to add to that? No, I don't. I, yeah, I had to you know, step away from the task of being a director for a moment, but no one didn't hear me. Um, well, how about I ask the question? You know, we t- we've been talking about privileges here and there and, and how privileges are afforded to individuals because of the similarity to the norms operating within the classroom. And, you know, I think with that in mind and knowing that there are that there are numerically so few of us. Um, how, where are you actually seeing male privilege? You know, I'm, I'm curious about that, and what are ways accountability can be fostered with that? You know, and if we have specific examples, that would be great because I think a lot of the times we're 
I think right now in this conversation, we're talking about something so big and whatnot that it might be hard for people to wrap their minds around this idea of uh, patriarchy and male privilege within early childhood. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of how the, the male identifying children in the classroom are inserting their will and their power. So physically moving, you know, anyone who, anyone of a different gender out of the way, right? Um, inserting themselves into conversations, giving, you know, I already mentioned about like the physical touching part. And I'm just like, how do I, how do I work and how do I talk about things like consent, right? Oh man, I love, I love giving hugs. And I'm like, okay, well now you're touching my body and, and today I don't feel like being touched, right? Or being hugged. And how am I subliminally working to to talk about or to just give a, a, a different idea that you don't have to be this dominant superior being to everything and everyone um and then look at everything that doesn't meet like that level as as weak mm, i think like he says just being a lot more being freely like be a lot more free um i think children would like it too when you're more free and when you don't just sit down and just say you know I'm like the kind of boss or like I'm the man, I'm not supposed to be doing this. You know, be a child. Like be a child and adult, like you wear, you could wear two hats at once. And uh then that can really work. I'm just giving out my opinion on that, but um and I'm you know, like like uh I don't know, uh giving a specific example would be most of the time when these activity to be done, especially it's not if it's not sports. If it's like dancing or drama or something with the kids, usually it's the female teachers that take part in it. Like, and sometimes guys will say, even guys teachers said, "I'm not going to do that. That's not many like, you know, take part in those kind of activities. Like, show show the other, show the other male kids they could do that too, and that does not take the masculinity away." Now I think about what you just said. I think about the emotional stratification that we put children in. Right? We we when girls or femme-identifying children, they act out, right? Suddenly they're aggressive or in our, um, you know, or how we, we dehumanize our, our children through that kind of emotional stratification. And I'm like, yo, emotions belong to, to all genders. Like, you ain't special just because <laughs> you, you're crying, right? And then it also talks about how do we cater to, to white tears? Like, as soon as a white girl cries right we're like oh my goodness oh my goodness. like and we overcompensate and we overshow emotions and then when our boys cry we're just like either some people still have like yo toughen up man up or we don't go over right away and attend to their needs in the same way that we might do to the other gender counterparts yeah and, and again i think that is the uh you're describing that lack of understanding that i think people have uh, you know uh, a three to five, most young children, regardless of their race, aren't going to have the development to just regulate their emotions. So their natural instinct is going to be to cry. And 
you know, regardless of the race and, and economic uh, standing, like it depends on how they were taught to regulate those. And then you got to take that a step further. It's like, well, are they lacking a particular knowledge and foundation of something because maybe their families weren't taught it? And so it becomes this generational key. And so that can be linked into generational trauma and generational racial expectations. And so, you know, if you're, yeah, I, without going on a tangent, um, but to your, to your comment of like males wanting to interject or sometimes interjecting the voice, I think if we look at that also at a neuroscientific level, we'll find that men's uh, impulse control and in their prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed until they're well into their 30s. I feel like I've barely got mine developed, you know, and it's so if usually we have something to say or want something to do, we don't think about our actions and the implications behind it. We just kind of do it. That's not an excuse for anything. I think that's just a fact for us to just sort of like to think about before we start saying like that's male privilege or that's patriarchy. I think it's like, I mean, it could be because like we've talked about before, um, you know, privilege to me isn't like a bad thing, but what we do with it or not is the biggest factor. And so, you know, kind of coming back, asking your question, um, sorry if you hear the roof being hammered on, but how, how do we as men, how can we use our platform to further advance gender balanced classrooms for all gender identities, whether it be femme identifying or for our trans and non-binary educators? Well, I would defer to you because you're a resident expert on this. You, you've done a lot of work <laughs> on this. I can, <laughs> but uh, that is, I think that's, that's a great question, right? And I think that's a great way to kind of end our segment today. Um, how do we, how do we work to, or use our platform as cis, um, uh, well, actually, I shouldn't project, my bad, Maraf, I don't know if you're cis or not, cisgender, um, but as male-identifying educators, right, uh, how do we work to advance more gender-balanced classrooms for all identities? Uh, uh, definitely having conversations like this. I, I know, Nick, you sit on a bunch of different task force um, and committees. So do I. And I'm thinking about even the work of trying to find more, because right now we're facing a crisis in terms of a shortage of educators in general um, in our state to come and work. So I'm thinking about how do we create more pathways through high schools which I feel like is an avenue that we haven't really touched upon. And in, in getting uh, those male identifying educators who want to be a teacher, rather than saying, hey, go work with elementary school, how do we then fold them and scaffold them into the EC landfill um, to get them, to show them that these are opportunities. And same thing with not just male identifying, but for other people. So providing different opportunities from as early as junior year in high school to be like, hey, this is, this is a way that, this is a, this is, you know, an amazing field. Um, yeah. Ralph? Um, I think mentorship. Mentorship might work. Um, you know, us being in the field, we can start, like you mentioned, we can start mentoring kids. 
in high school and junior high school telling them, hey, no, you can come work in the ECE field. It's not only for female then, you know, like the kids who enjoy your energy a lot more than you know. And then uh, to make it feel like, uh, to answer the other question is, you know, like you said, to keep having more conversation about it, but at the same time, us know that our privileges, we also advocate. We also teach, and whenever we see something like something being wrong or like to the other genders, you know, we stop and like we get in the middle of it, you know, and just help the other people or like ask them, are you okay? Like, do you need me to step up for you? Like, using those kind of tactics, I think, could work. I guess the last thing I would say is not just directly, like you, uh, we also need to make sure that we're crafting a culture, a workplace culture that is supportive of those of, of all different gender identities. You know, it's not enough to just like pay more, but it's it's making sure that um, different people are, feel comfortable, right, coming into our space, and that the those who are already in our spaces. Right, they're prepared for for having these different conversations, from having these reflective practice um, questions and thoughts, and and understanding their positionality in the world and um, how how they present themselves and and how does how does their their frameworks and the things that they've been taught um, growing up actually plays out in real life and it goes beyond sensitivity training it goes beyond like that one-off workshop but it, it gets to the heart of who we are as human beings that was beautifully said like uh i'll think i know because we are short on time we should consider doing a, a two-parter yeah i'm always down yeah i'm down for it too Right there. there. I guess it's settled. I guess we got to get up on this uh, part two pretty soon here. But, you know, um, Nick, Nikki, brother, you know, it's always it's always a pleasure uh, getting a chance to see your lovely face, even though you're busy doing a lot of director type stuff, big boss. And uh, Maraf, is, it was good to be in community with you, and I appreciate you both. Um, until next time, Napcasters, we'll catch you then.